Howdy, and thanks for tuning in to the Homestretch Podcast. 101 plus tips for navigating assisted living and nursing homes. I'm your host, Chad Schmidt, and here you'll discover the questions to ask from the researchers, professionals, and institutions so that you can make a more informed decision. In today's 40-minute episode, we sit down for the second time with guest Angela Caddick, who's a gerontologist for Baylor College of Medicine and the Michael DeBakey VA Medical Center in Houston, Texas. We're going to talk about elders living alone and whether or not your dad or mom is masking their ability to live independently the importance of maintaining a sense of purpose, why elders begin limiting fluid intake. And this happened to my grandmother. I hope that you find her response extremely valuable. And if so, you consider subscribing and sharing it with somebody that's in the throes of this chapter, trying to find a solution for their loved one. So let's dive right in with today's episode. For the individuals that haven't heard this first recording that we did with you, why don't you explain or share a little bit about what it is that you do and why somebody should listen to what it is that you have to share? Absolutely. My name is Angela Caddick. I'm a physician and a geriatrician here at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center in Baylor College of Medicine. At the VA, I direct our geriatric outpatient clinic as well as run a dementia clinic. And through my academic role at Baylor College of Medicine, I direct the geriatric fellowship. So you got some pretty powerful titles there. (laughs) And I imagine quite a bit of responsibility. It is, Is but I have always enjoyed taking care of older adults and along with their concern family members and caregivers, and I I feel it's really an honor to work with that population as well as teach geriatrics to our trainees. How long have you been in this role at Baylor College of Medicine? I've been here almost exactly five years, and prior to that, I was in Boston at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Very prestigious universities you've been a part of. Great places to learn geriatrics, that's for sure. (laughs) I did a recording with a nurse over at University of Texas Nursing School here in Houston. And she had done this research study on why elders were depressed. And a lot of it came down to they were living alone and they were also didn't have the spouse that they grew up falling in love with for the last 30, 40 years, and that was one thing that they didn't plan for was the possibility of their spouse not being with them. So what are some of the issues that elders who are by themselves face on a day-to-day basis, and what kind of impact does that have on them? I think that's a wonderful question, and it really does have a tremendous impact when they are living alone. You you mentioned the loss of a spouse. Many of our older adults have also lost their friend network and other social supports. And in many cases, children have moved far away for work-related or other etiologies, leaving them somewhat socially isolated. And that presents a real challenge and can have a snowball effect if they feel somewhat 
isolated and alone in the home without a lot of support. And unfortunately, this is often occurring at the same time that they are experiencing increasing physical and in some cases cognitive limitations, which may make it more difficult for them to perform their daily activities and live independently in their home. I'm a little bit thrown off there. You you said that it presents them with cognitive issues. Why does it present cognitive issues if they're living alone? It can be two sides of a coin. Number one, they could simply have some cognitive issues, but because no one is there to either recognize or assist with those, it becomes increasingly difficult and in some cases actually dangerous for them to be living alone. However, we also know that older adults who are isolated, who do not have good social interaction and support, are more likely, as the study you referenced showed, to become depressed. And they can also have some cognitive issues, either what we used to call pseudo-dementia, which is when depression presents more like a picture of dementia or cognitive decline than we may typically think of depression with tearfulness or loss of interest in activities. However, we also know that simply lack of a social support and lack of being engaged is also a risk factor for true cognitive decline. Well, that kind of makes it makes sense. And one of the things that I notice with several of the operations, whether that be an assisted living facility or nursing home, a short-term stay operation or a long-term stay operation, a lot of the elders are sitting around either a TV together or they're sitting in front of the TV alone in their bedroom and they're not really interacting with one another. And my assumption is that any time that you're watching the TV, the brain doesn't develop those social interaction skills and it has an effect on your ability to enjoy life, no matter what age. Absolutely. I have lots of conversations with my patients and and their families and caregivers in clinic about exactly this point, that the TV does not provide stimulation to the brain, it's not building any new connections, and that we really want our older adults engaging with those around them, be that in social activities or at the very least, perhaps listening to music together or playing a game together if they're in a type of supported care environment that you mentioned. At times, our elders do find that challenging for a variety of reasons. You can imagine if our older adults are in pain, if they have other physical limitations that make it challenging for them to leave their home and they're living alone, it's very easy to slide down that slippery slope towards being isolated and perhaps spending the day in front of the television. And in our older adults who have cognitive impairment, many times they find it very taxing to engage in the social situation. It's a heavy load for their cognition, and perhaps they are embarrassed if they cannot remember things or simply frustrated by the interaction. And again, find the path of least resistance be that watching television or are simply looking at the wall. Now, what about if they have a pet that allows them to have... I know some people talk to their pets 
and there is an engagement that takes place. But if somebody is elder and they're living alone and they don't have a, a person to talk to, does a pet act as a good substitute? Pets can be wonderful companions. I don't know that we have a study saying are they equivalent to having another human being there, but they can absolutely have a positive impact on our older adults, both cognitively and physically. So they provide a lot of companionship. As you mentioned, people talk to their pets. They engage with them. They provide affection. There's something that they're able to touch and pet. And physically, if the older adult is caring for the pet, that can be very beneficial. Whether that's a dog and the older adult is actually able to get out and take the dog for walks on a regular basis and that serves as an impetus for them to be more physically active. Or if that's not possible, perhaps having something like a cat, but they are still providing some physical care for that animal, feeding them, cleaning litter pans, things of that nature. And that can provide both a physical activity as well as a sense of responsibility for another living creature, which can be very fulfilling. Well, I'm glad that you bring that up because I was just going to point out the importance of having responsibility. The two episodes ago, for those that are listening, I did a recording with the sales manager for a assisted living community. She brought up a patient that had recently moved in that owned their own business and was responsible for paying the bills. And what the kids would do is bring in old bills with the dates blocked out. And the individual would write fake checks and that gave him a sense of responsibility because he was actually doing something. And so I think it's important that you mention responsibility does play a role in giving the elders, whether they're at home or in a community or an environment that they're surrounded by others that are in the same condition as them, a will to keep fighting and to do something and that they know that they're productive instead of a waste of space. You are absolutely correct. We all want to be productive, meaningful members of society. We want to have a sense of purpose, and it's very important to maintain that in our older adults. And what that looks like, of course, can be widely variable. If we have an older adult in relatively good health living in the community, they may be able to engage in for example, volunteer activities at the local school. I had many patients who serve as greeters and have other functions within their faith community. And those are very important. Those give their life meaning. They know every Wednesday and Sunday I'm going to be at church and I'm going to make the coffee and I'm going to greet people as they come in the door. And that really gives them a sense of purpose. However, for our older adults with more significant physical or cognitive limitations, purpose remains equally important. And thinking with them and thinking with their families about what can give their life purpose or meaning within the context of their illness is very important. There can be meaning at home with making baby blankets to give to those who may be less fortunate, meaning in watching grandchildren, or as you mentioned, with the gentleman who was writing the fake checks, sometimes people find meanings in ways that we may not think of initially, 
but are meaningful to them. I know of lots of older adults with dementia in facilities, and they may find meaning in wiping down the tables after a meal, even if the tables then have to be wiped down again by staff when, when that individual is no longer in the room or delivering mail, or other small tasks that they are able to engage in and make them feel that their life has meaning. I had this dream the other night that I was uh, operating a facility, and or maybe not operating it, but my team had these like monopoly money. And every time that the individuals were finished eating, they had to pay with the Monopoly money. Or every time that they had to go get a haircut and the haircut was at the operation, they had to pay for it. And there wasn't the use of a card. It actually required them to think, okay, here's my ones, my fives, my twenties. I have to pay for this service that's coming to me. It, It was just a dream and I thought, wow, that'd be a great idea to implement to give somebody that maybe is struggling with cognitive ability to train their brain to do actions that once were part of their everyday life and considering that a lot of elders grew up not having a lot of money and paying for things with cash as a child, that might actually provide some different type of stimulation that could potentially bring them back Absolutely. It would be a great way to keep the mind active within a a safe setting where, you know, we all have heard about, of course, financial fraud and abuse of our older adults, but within a safe setting where they can still practice and maintain those skills with counting their money, or it may be skills of playing the piano, and they're, they're still doing that, and that's encouraged to maintain that skill or skills of actually going into the kitchen, which I know occurs in some facilities, and cooking, if that's been a lifelong passion. So being in a facility definitely does not mean and should not mean that we have to lose some of these life skills because there are ways that we can get creative and help our older adults to maintain them as long as possible. Well, what about some of the the limitations from a functional standpoint that elders face? with that being maybe some physical limitations. I know that my grandmother lived at home by herself for quite a while, and then when she got to a point where she wasn't able to do certain things, like the simplest walk, then we, we now were presented with another physical challenge. So what are some of the functional limitations that you have recognized with our elders? So when we think about function at home, Let's start with a global picture of that. So in geriatrics, we think of what are called instrumental activities of daily living and activities of daily living. Instrumental activities of daily living are those higher order skills, is the way we could think about them, that let us live completely independently in the world. It includes things like transportation, financial management, medication management, cooking, laundry, cleaning, things of this nature. While our activities of daily living are more basic, these are dressing, bathing, feeding oneself, using the toilet, grooming. With our older adults, typically 
unless there is some sort of catastrophic event like a massive stroke, we see a decline in the instrumental activities of daily living prior to the activities of daily living. That being said, the instrumental activities of daily living are ones that can often be addressed or supported by family or caregivers. You know, the son may take over the finances. We may get a visiting nurse to come in and fill a pill box and help with medication management. But the real barrier comes when our older adults are having difficulty with those more fundamental activities of daily living. And that can be for a variety of reasons. It can be due to gait instability and they're no longer safe to move about the home to get in and out of the shower on their own. It could be due to a stroke, which leaves them with deficits that make them unable to feed themselves or toilet independently. Or, again, it's often cognitive and they begin to lose those abilities. I recall my grandmother, when we told her how important it was for her to continue to drink water, and we noticed that she was drinking soda and she was only drinking a few ounces and I'm talking maybe 12 to 20 ounces a day of any type of liquid, whether that be coffee, soda, tea, anything. And we later discovered that she didn't want to drink fluids because she didn't want to use the restroom. And she didn't want to use the restroom because there was some problem with her using the restroom. I wasn't a part of that conversation. That was more of my mom that got involved with that one. But these physical limitations that you're talking about with specifically going to the bathroom can present a lot of different challenges because now it becomes also a safety issue, like you mentioned, in coordination with their instability of their gait and their ability to balance their strength to be able to get up off of the toilet, that's for a woman or um, even a man, that there could be some activities or lack of activities that you start to notice prior that become an issue when nobody's looking. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the case in your grandmother is very common where people begin to limit their intake of fluids because they find it so difficult to get to the restroom or because they are incontinent and they find it difficult to clean themselves or are not able to clean themselves after an episode of incontinence. And so try to prevent that as much as possible by simply not drinking. One of the questions that I actually have had a long time is as an adult, and in this case a much older adult, You've grown up using the restroom, being able to make it to the restroom without a problem and soil your undergarments. As an older adult, from a psychological standpoint, when you get to that point where you are urinating or having a bowel movement in your clothes, what is the thoughts and confidence that that individual has about their life 
once it gets to that point where this becomes a regular part of their day. Of course, it varies individual by individual, but if cognitively they are aware that this is occurring, it can be incredibly embarrassing for them. We see many older adults who, again, they don't want to share that with family members. They don't even want to share that with their medical providers. And at times will isolate themselves simply because they are so concerned about going out of the home into the community and having an accident and soiling themselves. If this is a topic that is brought up, and I would encourage every medical provider to ask about incontinence in our older adults. Don't wait for our patients to tell us that. We can hopefully work together to think of various solutions, including the use of protective undergarments so they do feel more comfortable going out. And if an accident occurs, no one has to know about that. I used to work at a large retailer and. I was not part of the maintenance crew, but I would hear stories of cleanups that had to happen in the restroom, and I can only imagine that, you know, that's a big embarrassment for an individual that oftentimes they might just stay in the bathroom for a long time without ever coming out because they realize there's an accident here, and I either have to clean myself up, clean the mess up, with no gloves, with limited supply, and it's an embarrassing reality that I imagine a lot of elders face, and they don't want to talk about it. But are there other limitations that you have been able to recognize, such as like a family member that doesn't live in the same city and maybe even several states away? What other limitations are there? Bathing is a very important limitation, especially, as you mentioned, for families that don't live near and see the elder on a regular basis. They may not be aware of that. Many of our older adults are either scared of having a fall or have fallen, and the shower becomes a very dangerous place for them, and they're frightened to get into the shower with wet water and slippery floors and tiles that they have to step out onto. And so many times we'll limit their bathing or perhaps sponge bath, wipe off at the kitchen sink or in the the bathroom sink instead of getting in and taking a full shower. This just recently came up in one of my patients when a child who lived out of state had come and called me very concerned saying that their parent had previously been an individual who bathed on a daily basis and was very, very meticulous about their personal hygiene, and then now noted that that parent was simply sponging off at the sink. And that was a wake-up call that their function at home was not as safe and independent as they had been presenting it, both in clinic to us as well as to this child living out of state. Well, I was having this conversation the other day. If you don't get the opportunity to see your family member, except for a couple of hours a week, it becomes very easy or maybe not very easy, but it becomes easier for them to mask some of the realities of their situation. For instance, driving. If you're going to visit grandma, because this happened in my situation, my grandma would say, why don't you drive? She didn't want to drive and it was probably because she realized that her reaction time wasn't as good as it once was 
and she didn't want me to witness that. And as we expand upon that, there's other activities that can be hidden in a very short visit with a family member. And then we had a, a friend that was in a elder community that had seen the patterns and things that came to visit my grandmother for several days. And after the first day, this woman had to call up my mom and was like, your mom can't live on her own anymore. And my mom was completely caught off guard. I think our older adults, many of them are very good at social graces. And if, as you gave the example, we're seeing them a couple hours per week and may not think anything if grandma suggests that we are the one that drive or we take her out to lunch so we don't see the difficulty she's having in the kitchen. And this is where perhaps neighbors who see them much more frequently can be very helpful in letting families know if they have any concerns. Or I would even suggest making sure as family members with the permission of the older adult that you're touching base with their medical providers. Many times we have concerns, but unless our patients agree to let us speak to family members, we may not be able to readily address those as quickly as we would like. And there are wonderful services, including skilled nursing, where a nurse could go out and check on the individual and see how they're managing their medications or physical therapy to do a home safety evaluation. So we can involve other professionals to give us a lot more information and actually go into the home if concerns arise, and that can be very, very beneficial. Okay. Is there any other limitations that you want to mention here? I would just say the other danger zone, so to speak, or the period where a lot of these come to light is at the death of a spouse. We know that many of our older adults, as you mentioned previously, have been in relationships for decades, and they're very good at compensating for and allowing each other to function. It's innumerable times that I have worked with families that it was after the death of one of the spouses or after a spouse had a prolonged hospitalization that it came to light that the other parent really had significant functional limitations, which they were unaware of. I would like for you to talk about that for a moment here, is that if there is a spouse that's responsible for caregiving, there might present an issue with that individual's physical capabilities to help the one that's not able to take care of themselves. Can you talk about that for a moment? I'm happy to. Much of caregiving can be very physically demanding. And in my role here at the VA, the vast majority of my patients are male and the vast majority of their caregivers are their elderly female wives. And as you can imagine, simply the acts of assisting someone with cleaning themselves after using the toilet or trying to move them in bed or assisting with bathing can be very physically demanding. And it may reach the point that an elderly spouse is unable to assist with those functions. Another real danger zone is if a patient were to suffer a fall at home. And many times I see older adult caretakers who believe they can get their spouse up off the floor if a fall occurs. And in most cases, that's simply not true. I think most of us have had the experience of lifting a child when that child was not assisting and was dead weight, and now you can multiply that times 
many, many pounds, and it can become simply impossible to get that individual off the floor. So I'm often talking to spouses about having life alerts, especially as some of them come from a generation where they still don't carry their cell phone with them all the time. We want them to quickly and easily be able to access emergency services if the other older adult was on the floor or if, goodness forbid, the caretaker had a fall and was on the floor and perhaps their spouse has cognitive issues and is no longer able to call for assistance for the caretaker to be wearing a life alert as well and be able to push that button and summon help. Very good point. I could just imagine that not everybody that's living in the house has made the adjustments, for instance, in the bathroom to have the handrails like you see in the restrooms at a commercial restaurant or at the grocery store, that if somebody's in the restroom and that caregiver that's the spouse isn't able to help them get up off the toilet, sometimes having those handrails is beneficial and not everybody has this physical strength or has taken those those measures to install the equipment to make it more convenient to be able to help somebody with their daily needs. And again, that is where asking your medical provider to send out a therapist to perform a home safety evaluation can be so very beneficial. They are going to look for not only the need for handrails in various places, but looking at the carpeting. Are there throw rugs that present a tripping hazard? Are there drop cords perhaps that are strung across to a lamp that present a tripping hazard? Do we need to think about reinforcing the railing on the outside stairway that they use to get up to the front door? Just looking at every part of that home, almost if you know, we're baby proofing your house when, when your baby started to, to crawl and walk, but thinking about how can we make this home safer for our elderly patients. Handrails in the restroom are a perfect example, and I can't tell you how many times we've seen accidents when individuals try to use the towel bar to assist themselves in getting either out of the shower or up from the toilet. And the towel bar is not made for that. It's not strong enough to hold their weight. So putting in grab bars, it's relatively simple, but it can make a huge difference. Well, I want to transition here to talking about some of the solutions that are available. Why don't you share with us, Angela, a few of the the different solutions that are out there for people? I think a number one solution that I want to make sure everyone is aware of is their area agency on aging. We have these throughout Texas. It's something that you can Google on the internet and find your local area agency on aging or it's something that your medical provider should be able to assist you with getting contact information for them. And they can be simply a treasure trove of information about services for older adults in your area. Be those reputable home care companies, day programs, senior centers, the list goes on. Also, starting to talk to the medical provider for the older adult that you are concerned about to find out what sort of services are available. If they are a veteran, we have amazing services within the VA. We have what is called skilled services. We can send out 
a nurse if needed, a physical or occupational therapist. At the VA, we also have what is termed non-skilled services. So if they meet criteria, we can send home health aides to assist with those activities of daily living that we talked about earlier, so assisting with bathing, grooming, as well as sending a homemaker to do some errands, meal preparation, and like cooking and cleaning. There's a variety of options within the VA system, outside of the VA system. There are many services available both through Medicare and the state. So it does take a little bit of detective work. I can absolutely understand why it can feel overwhelming for a caregiver whose plate is already so full. So again, reaching out to the area agency on aging, talking to the medical provider, or reaching out to a social worker can be great ways to open the door and start exploring services in your particular area. Can you share with the listeners a little bit about the differences between a retirement community, assisted living, long-term care, daycares, nursing homes, and then obviously there's in-home care options as well. Can you kind of share a little bit about that? The alphabet soup of available care options, which again can be very confusing. Starting with adult day programs, adult day programs are typically a structured program, oftentimes, but not always, for older adults with cognitive issues where they engage in social activities. There may or may not be medical services provided there. For example, they may have a physical therapist who can work with individuals attending the program. Meals are typically provided. And it can be very helpful for caregivers to get a break in caring for their loved one with cognitive issues, for them to attend their own medical appointments or run errands while they know their loved one is in a safe, supported environment. An assisted living facility, I tell my trainees, it's just like it sounds, it's assisted. Most of the time, individuals will live in their own apartment there. Meals are typically provided. One can pay to have additional services. So if the older adult in question needs assistance with bathing or grooming, that's something that can typically be added on. But it is a lower level of care than we would see in what we consider a traditional nursing home, where medications are administered, meals are provided, someone is helping that individual with their activities of daily living. It's a much more medicalized environment. You also mentioned continuing retirement communities. So these are communities where adults often move when they're very functional and may even live in a home within that community and require no assistance. And if and when their health declines, they can move to levels of more supported care. There may be an assisted living. There may be a rehabilitation section. So if they suffer an injury such as a broken hip or a hospitalization, they can go back to that rehabilitation section of the community and receive a higher level of medical care. And there are often nursing homes and even hospice areas available for later in their life when they need a more supported care environment and are not functioning on their own in terms of their IADLs and ADLs. Is there any other solutions or maybe even recommendations that you would give to somebody that's listening to this episode? 
think in terms of in-home care, that is an area that can be very challenging and frustrating and concerning for families and caregivers. Even with the services I mentioned, it will only be a handful of hours per week that that individual will be in the home. So if the older adult is truly requiring 24-hour supervision, then we would have to be thinking about hiring out-of-pocket for an in-home caregiver if that was the route the older adult and family wished to consider, or if that was something that was covered perhaps in a long-term care insurance policy that they might have. I think the other thing I want to make sure your audience is aware of, which may be slightly off topic but is a question I get asked a lot, is about home hospice. There is often the misperception that if our loved one goes on hospice at home, so they have some sort of a terminal illness where a medical professional feels it would not be surprising if they passed away within six months or less and they elect to go on hospice, there's often the misperception that a hospice provider, a caregiver from the hospice facility will be in the home 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that's simply not the case. And many times families are surprised by this and frustrated by this because their loved one does require 24-hour care, but the hospice nurse is only coming out a handful of times per week. Now, it is true there's always someone on call 24 hours a day from the hospice. They are able to come for a change in medical status, but simply the notion that someone would be sitting there all the time is not true, and that can be frustrating for families when they learn that. So that's an instance where they would have to have a nurse that comes to the house and maybe is available 24-7 and maybe even lives at the house with the elder, but hospice is going to come in to provide checkups. Exactly. After doing some research, a lot of the places that provide nursing home type of responsibilities are actually categorized by license by the state of Texas as an assisted living facility. The licensing is incredibly complicated and not an area where I am at all an expert, but definitely (laughs) encourage families, you know, talk to your social workers, talk to others who perhaps have loved ones in the facility, and definitely visit because until you go, it's hard to know exactly what a facility is like and if it's a good fit for your loved one. Well, I hope you enjoyed what Angela had to share in today's episode, and there's several next steps that you can take. Press subscribe on whatever platform that you're listening to this on. I'm not going to name all of them, but YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or just a few. You can also head over to homestretch101.com, and you can receive a free downloadable audiobook titled 25 Questions That an Assisted Living Operation Doesn't Expect or Want You to Know. And you'll also find solutions for placement, links to videos, and the past recordings that we've done with the featured guests. With that said, I wish you good health and eternal love, and have a beautiful day.